there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. If you love to bake and you want to know what it takes to start a food business, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest started her gluten-free business in her home kitchen almost five years ago and is now supplying Whole Foods stores in the Washington, D.C. area, as well as through home delivery, through Fresh Direct in New York, Philly, D.C., and Northern Virginia. But before I introduce you to Susan Weiner, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Monday and gives you a sneak peek into the guests and the episodes we're going to be dropping that week. And it is super easy to do, my friends. Just go to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my gluten-intolerant Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is Susan Weiner, the founder of Orange Dot Baking Company. Inspired by a report on poverty in her hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia, called the Orange Dot Report, Susan conceived of the Orange Dot Baking Company to generate local employment while producing a healthy, flavorful alternative to existing high-glycemic, gluten-free breads. Prior to founding Orange Dot, Susan was the president and chief financial officer at Centriva, which is a software company that creates an app to help colleges and universities get their accreditation. Earlier in her career, Susan was a vice president and equity research analyst at the investment bank Donaldson, Lufkin, and Genrette which was acquired by the Swiss multinational investment bank Credit Suisse, but after Susan left that firm. Susan, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am all set. Thanks, Andrea. Yay. All right. Well, before we get into everything Orange Dot and how you started your business, I want to share with our listeners, Susan, how you and I met. because. I get asked fairly frequently how I find all of my guests. (laughs) And the answer is that I find them in many, many different ways, some through friends, some through LinkedIn, some through people I meet at Whole Foods. (laughs) Actually, you are the first that I met. It's not the most glamorous aspect of my job. Oh, gosh, no. I, I wasn't even thinking of it in that way. I think it's so cool. I mean, it's... Consumer to consumer marketing, right? Exactly. It's super important. I was doing my grocery shopping and I want to let our listeners know as well, I am not a stalker, at least (laughs) I hope I'm not a stalker. (laughs) And I saw this tasting station that was set up by the frozen foods and I noticed that it said that it was different kinds of gluten-free muffins. And so I'm gluten-free and so I went up to try a bite. And then I started talking with this lovely woman who started telling me about the ingredients. And you were educating me about why xanthan gum is bad. And I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. 
and other, you know, really interesting facts. And you were talking about like why you use the ingredients you do so that the bread actually toasts. And it turns out that she was the founder of the Orange Dot Baking Company. And do you remember what I asked you, Susan? Oh, gosh, I don't. I remember we had a very long conversation, but I don't remember specifically. Okay. Well, I asked you, I believe, if you had always been a baker or if you had always been in the food industry. Ah, And it was what you said in response to that question that made me think you would make a wonderful interview. You said, oh, no, I started out in investment banking. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yes. Which is true. I was the first woman on Wall Street to cover the heavy equipment industry in 1989. Well, we're going to get into your past in a little bit. And I just want to thank you so much for your willingness to come on the show to talk about how you've built your career. And we will get into how you started in investment banking a little bit later. But first, let's talk about your current career as the founder and CEO of the Orange Dot Baking Company. You started it in June of 2015. Is that right? That's when we incorporated, uh uh-huh. Yes. That's when you incorporated. And why, Susan, did you decide to focus on gluten-free breads? So I was inspired by two things. One is Greystone Bakery in Yonkers, New York, which creates employment for difficult to employ people on the first rung of the economic ladder. And they've been hugely successful supplying brownies to Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Um, The second thing was I had read a report in Charlottesville called the Orange Dot Report which was about poverty in Charlottesville. And that if you look at a census map of Charlottesville, there would be an orange dot of poverty in the very center of Charlottesville. And my son is celiac. So I knew that there was no healthy gluten-free bread out there. And I thought, I'm a business person. I want to give back to my community. I should start a gluten-free bread company. And that was the genesis of the idea. And what is it that sets orange dot bread apart from other products that are in the grocery stores today? Oh my gosh, it's so much healthier than the gluten-free bread that's out there. Most gluten-free bread is very high glycemic. The second ingredient is usually tapioca starch. It's filled with things like xanthan gum and guar gum and cellulose gum, which I can talk for a long time about xanthan gum, why it's not good for you, but my bread doesn't... go ahead. Okay, great. Yeah, so xanthan gum is black mold. It's the black mold that grows on broccoli. And in an industrial setting, they grow that bacteria on corn and they use rubbing alcohol, which is a carcinogen, to separate the bacteria from the corn. And then they bleach it, grind it, dry it, sell it. And chefs like it because it makes food behave in a way that it wouldn't normally behave. So for instance, it makes the salad dressing stick to the lettuce. It also, to make a loaf of gluten-free bread, you need something like xanthan gum that will allow you to blow it up. I mean, it sounds kind of, icky and unpleasant, which it is. But the main reason that I don't like it is that it gives a lot of people an upset stomach or flu-like symptoms or migraine headaches. And they just don't know why. It's a food additive that the FDA calls a synthetic food. And there's just not a lot of information available about it. But people who've eaten gluten-free for a while, when I talk to them about this, you see like a light bulb goes over their head. They're like, oh, that's it. And it's the xanthan gum that makes a lot of people have a very upset stomach. So 
I use ground chia seeds, you know, to get gelatinous in water and powdered psyllium husk, which is an all natural fiber. And that's what I use to bind my bread together. And I use organic eggs and organic butter. And I don't use anything like canola oil. So I use really great ingredients. And I developed this crazy baking process, this proprietary baking process, which cooks my bread almost like a dumpling. And it involves a lot of steam. It's a super moist. It has just a really satisfying chew that most gluten-free bread doesn't have. Most gluten-free bread is either powder or cardboard. So it has a really satisfying chew. And I hope you enjoy it. I call it an English muffin because I cook it in a four-inch cake pan and I don't know what else to call it, but it's... <laughs> well, it is the other thing. Not only is it moist, but it's also really crunchy and full confession here to our listeners. I have enjoyed, I think just, well, not all of your products, but many of them, some of which I bought the day I met you, Susan, and others which you were kind enough to send me a amazing care package, which my husband and I have thoroughly enjoyed. And they include, yeah, the raisin muffins, the chocolate chip muffins, and then the English muffins that you refer to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of variety in bread out there in the gluten-free world. Then that's the other thing is the, the flavor profile. You know, so like I make an everything which has onion, garlic, poppy seed, and salt and is sort of comparable to an everything bagel, but in more of a roll or an English muffin style. And the chocolate is more like a chocolate croissant. You know, it's like a simple dough. They're really high quality, guitard, semi-sweet chocolate chip. And online, I make flavors like Santa Fe Savory, which has roasted corn, jalapenos, a little crushed red pepper and garlic. So there's a lot of flavors out there that are missing in the gluten-free world, which tends to be very white bread oriented. Exactly. And as you alluded to just a few minutes ago, you started Orange Dot in your home kitchen in Charlottesville, Virginia, because you were inspired by a report on poverty that looked at the greater Charlottesville area. Mm -hmm. And that report came out in 2015, at least that was the second iteration of the report. I think the first one came out in 2011. Mm -hmm. And one of the headlines of this report, I want to read to our listeners. So they appreciate just how severe the problem is in Charlottesville and in so many communities around the United States. Nearly one out of every five families in the Charlottesville region does not earn enough income to provide for their most basic needs. The vast majority of these struggling families consist of women and their children, absent a sustained methodical and intentional effort, a huge number of the children born into low-income families will remain there the rest of their lives. To break this cycle, parents need quality jobs. There are over 5,600 families in our community who do not earn enough to be independent. Now, plenty of people read reports, Susan, myself included. And we read that and we say, that's, you know, heartbreaking. What a shame. But right. we don't do anything about it. What was it about that report that compelled you to act? Well, I think that it really touched me because I have been the beneficiary of so much help myself. I grew up in rural Alabama 
And my father was a disabled veteran and my siblings all went to college courtesy of the Alabama GI Bill. And I went to college in the Northeast. I had a Pell Grant. I had college work study. I had a lot of mentors there. And then later on going to Wall Street, the support of the women in that community was amazing. I really look at where I am in my life as standing on the shoulders of so many people who have helped me. You know, at this point in my life, I'm looking for a way that I can give back to my community. And I I taught English as a second language for a while. I volunteer on some boards and I really came back to thinking, you know, my my skill is as a business person. Um, that's really what I have to offer the community. And my passion is cooking and my son is celiac. And I'm just like, I'm going to marry all these things together and do something good for the world. It's been a really long journey, a whole lot harder than I thought it would be. But I get up every day and that's my mission, make a difference. And by providing employment, we have an IRC here in the Charlottesville area. We have an international rescue committee. And so that's sort of my target community for looking at the existing population and also new immigrants into our community. You're looking at them as prospective employees. Is that right? Yes. So how many employees do you have on staff now? And and are they mostly single mothers or do you have a range of people on staff? We have about five people on staff. We're still small. I had sort of envisioned that that aspect of it would grow more significantly than it has. You know, we have a single mother, we have an immigrant, we have another struggling mother. It's actually a nice community of women <laughs> at my shop. So, That's yeah. Terrific. I would love to know, Susan, and I'm guessing our listeners would as well, how you started building Orange Dot. Could you? Break it down for all of us, especially for those who might want to start a food-related business at some point. What were those initial, kind of if we're thinking about this as building a foundation, what were the bricks that you were laying down, I should say, to get the company up and running? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the first thing I did was I went and worked in a very successful commercial bakery here in town. You know, I wanted to see how does a commercial bakery operate? What do they do? How do they make it all happen? I worked at Albemarle Baking Company here in Charlottesville and makes fabulous, it's all glutinous, but it's fabulous bread. And to see what that was like, I worked there for about six months. And all the while I was experimenting with my own recipes at home and reading and buying every gluten-free cookbook out there, every blog, researching ingredients, I love the food science side of it. I could talk about ingredients for a long time. I first wanted to get a a picture of like, how do I just create this in my mind? Like, what is a picture on the inside of a bakery? What does it look like? And so I I wanted to experience that firsthand. I started out playing with the dough and uh, playing with different processes. In some ways, not being a classically trained chef or not being a classically trained bread maker was helpful to me because I experimented with all kinds of things in the processes of baking my bread. And unfortunately, it's proprietary, so I don't want to share all the ins and outs of it on the air. But my family was like, what is mom doing in the kitchen? (laughs) Smoke, steam, all different sounds. Yes, exactly. And then I spoke to a friend of mine who had a stall at the farmer's market selling traditional bagels. And I said, look, you probably have gluten-free customers. Can I sell alongside you and test market my product and just see if I have a viable product? 
it was really successful at the farmer's market. The farmer's market is a great place to try new products because you get instant feedback and people are very, you know, forthright in their opinions and it's a wide, diverse community. I'm still at the farmer's market, but that first six months was really critical to me. And then I'm like, okay, I think I've got a viable product. How am I going to scale it? And there was a local church that had a kitchen they were willing to rent to me. So I first went to the church kitchen and I used that for six months. And then I was outgrowing the church kitchen and I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to take over the basement of my home because my children are, we're empty nesters now. We didn't need a man cave anymore. I took over the whole basement and installed sinks and ovens and I worked there for about a year and then my homeowner's insurance was going to be canceled if I didn't move the business out of my basement. So I have my own commercial kitchen in the lease building, a lease space. I'm all about now about scaling. I've got an incredibly great baking team. I've got an incredibly great farmer's market team. And I'm looking at how do I expand now into other farmers markets and how do I scale that production and marketing to reach other markets? And that's why, you know, moving into the Whole Foods in Washington, D.C. and then getting into Fresh Direct, which will give me sales into, you know, Manhattan and D.C. and Philadelphia. You know, that's a super important part of my growth trajectory right now. What do you wish you had known before you set out to build Orange Dot? that you could share with our young listeners? I wish I had studied different business models for food companies. The Food Finance Institute, which is a part of University of Wisconsin in Madison, you can actually purchase these different discussions of different models, you know, like a small bakery model or a national scalable food product. I wish I had known more about it then because I could have set myself up better to be more successful. I wish I had known how much money to plan for. So it really does take $50,000 to launch at the local level. And that sounds like a lot of money, but it really isn't when you start thinking about, well, you need some specialized equipment, you need some working capital, you need, you need to be able to create a package. $50,000 goes in a big hurry. And then to really scale to the regional level, you need more like 500, 500,000. And again, the marketing side of it really consumes a lot of financial, uh, it, it just consumes a lot of finance, you know, doing demos and promotions and coupons and advertising on social media. So I wish I had a better handle on what that marketing cost would be before I started or just as a general model, because it would have allowed me to plan better instead of being sort of surprised like, oh, wow, you know, this much for marketing. It's all good. It's all exciting, but it's, it's just much better if you have a solid plan to start with. Absolutely. How has your experience on Wall Street, which we'll get into in just a couple of minutes, helped you out, if at all, in building Orange Dot? My experience on Wall Street really taught me that I could problem solve and I could think through and I could sell my ideas to people. And it was sort of a trial by fire experience for me as a young person, as a young woman, 26 when I started on Wall Street. And so I think it sort of gave me a backbone of steel. That's helpful. Great. And you also got your MBA at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm guessing that also really helped. Yeah. And in fact, when I was at Wharton, 
I paid my tuition by consulting with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. I really, at that point, decided I really wanted to have my own company one day and be in control of not just my own destiny, but also of creating an idea and working with people, having the ability to build a team. I really enjoy the teamwork aspects of a small company. That's super important to me. I really came to appreciate that when I worked at the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Terrific. Okay, Susan, let's flash back to when you were in college. You went to Wesleyan University and you got a BA in economics. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I had no idea what I was going to do. As I mentioned before, I came from a modest background in Alabama. I really didn't have the headspace to think about a wide variety of options. I wanted to do something that would put me on a trajectory to earn some money, to have some financial stability, a career path, a launching path. And so I went to Bankers Trust and did a bank training program, which was incredibly, it was actually almost better than an MBA in many ways. It was such a well done training program at the time. At this point in my life, I wish I had considered some other options like perhaps the Peace Corps or things that are a little bit less traditional. But at the point where I was in my life and my growth and my history, I really felt like I just wanted to have some financial stability underneath me. Yeah, that makes total sense. So what do you wish you had known when you were looking for that first post-college job? So what I really wish I had understood is how much people want to help people who are coming out of college and how rewarding it is for people in their 40s and 50s who have a successful career to talk with young people about their path forward. It's wonderful to share your expertise. It's wonderful when somebody wants to hear your expertise. It would have been really helpful to me if I had understood that at that point in my life. I really need to be more proactive, go talk to more people, and that those people wanted to talk to me and would actually enjoy talking to me and enjoy helping me. I wish I had really understood that because I think I would have explored more options. So to seek out mentors. Yes, to seek out mentors and not in any single direction. Don't focus too soon. Cast a very wide net to start with. Gosh, I was the same way, Susan, the same way as you. (laughs) I think for me, it was mostly insecurity because I felt like, and this is the absurdity of it, I felt like I had to act like I already knew it. Yes. Because otherwise, they wouldn't want me in the job. And if I started revealing to my colleagues who were so much more seasoned than I was that I didn't know what the heck I was doing, Mm -hmm. that they would look down on me. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think the opposite is true. Nobody expects you to know it all. And and if you are genuine in your outreach and just say something like, hey, I'm really kind of struggling here with such and such, or I would really love to learn more about X, Y, or Z. You seem to really be on top of it. Do you have any advice for me? Yes. Yes. Of course, the humorous thing is now that I've been through some careers and I'm older is that you can see when young people don't know. When someone is new in an industry, of course they don't know and you know they don't know, but they're trying to pretend that they do know. And so it's a very 
awkward. Yes. Yeah. yes. I feel like this. And because I know that my 15-year-old son will not be listening to this show, I can say, I feel it's somewhat similar to my trying to give him advice. And yet, as a teenager, his inclination is to push back. Like, I know, mom, leave me alone. Right. But it's different when you're a young professional. Don't think that it's like reaching out to your parents. <laughs> it really is. We are there in the workforce, those of us who are farther along in our careers. And as Susan said, we want to help you. We really right. do. We want you to learn from our mistakes, which is why people like Susan are so willing to do this kind of time for coffee interview because we hope you won't make the same mistakes we did. <laughs> right, right. And also it just feels great to be asked. You know, I mean, it's wonderful to share. You know, love sharing my experience and I think other people feel the same way. If there's a young person out there who's starting a career and they're being proactive to track me down and ask me questions. I want to help that person because I think that person is going to be successful and I want to feel like I was part of that success. Great. Absolutely. So you've already alluded to the fact that your first job, you've said your first job was at Bankers Trust, which is an investment bank. Was a commercial bank at the time. Oh, it was a commercial bank at the time. Okay. So what is a commercial bank? And why do you think, I mean, you mentioned the great training program, or who do you think would be the best fit for that type of company? Well, I think that there's definitely a role. Commercial banking is more typically like doing loans to corporations and loans to people to buy their homes. Of course, now all the lines are blurred between investment banking and commercial banking. But I think that if you're good at numbers and you want to analyze something big picture, like from the 20,000 feet level, I think those are great jobs. You know, it certainly offer more financial stability, at least out of the gate. I think that if you are more of a person who likes to see how things run or see how things work or see what happens when you do something different, then I think working in a company where you can actually be part of a process, whether it's manufacturing or baking or selling and seeing how companies run from the inside, I think can be a really valuable experience. So there's lots of different ways to go about this. If you want to go into commercial banking or investment banking, I think you have to be someone who wants to sit in a chair all day, staring at a screen and very professional environment. I mean, those environments shape who you are. It's a very different set of social forces in an investment bank than it is, say, in a restaurant or a manufacturing company. Great. So you went from bankers to Wharton, is that right? Uh-huh, that's correct. Okay. And then as you said, you worked at the Wharton Small Business Development Center, and then you went to work for Donaldson, Lufkin, and Genret. You were vice president and equity research analyst, where you became the first female analyst to cover the heavy equipment industry as an equity analyst. How did that happen? <laughs> It was a marriage of my background in economics as an undergraduate to follow companies like Caterpillar and Ingersoll Rand on the stock market. You have to understand economic forces. So it was a marriage of that and also you know, what the opportunity was at Donaldson Luck Engineering, the industries they didn't have filled. And I think that they looked at my skill set and me and said, you know what, I think it's having a woman in this spot might be advantageous. In many ways, it was because it was just being different. I think there were people who took my phone calls 
you know, over someone else's because I was a woman and they were sort of intrigued. Like there's a 26 year old woman following this industry. Let me see if she's smart. I think I did really well. I was a runner's up, I guess the second year in the institutional investors analyst rankings. It was a very heady time for me. Ultimately determined it wasn't where I thought my passions lay, but it was an incredible experience for me. Well, congratulations. And I have no doubt there are many women now in the industry sector. It's kind of scary to think that, let's say about 30 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, there weren't women in that. So kudos to you for being a trailblazer. Well, it was a little bit like living a 1950s black and white photo. All the meetings were filled with gray-haired men. Yeah, I'm guessing it was a little Mad Men-esque. It was. Yes. So, Susan, I try to ask all Time for Coffee guests the following questions. The first of which is, if you could share a time in your professional life when you really struggled, maybe you even failed at something, or maybe it was just that you had to work with a really challenging boss or supervisor, or had unpleasant colleagues or just had to work 24-7 to a point of burnout, whatever it was, could you please share a story with us? And more importantly, how you persevered and maybe a lesson you learned in the process. So when I worked on Wall Street, it was an extremely stressful environment. So as an equity analyst, you analyze companies and then you make recommendations to institutional investors about what to buy and sell. And it's a pretty high stress environment. And I really had to dig deep on many occasions to, you know, sort of stand up and say, okay, this is what my analysis shows. This is what I'm going to recommend. But, you know, again, it's that sort of stepping off a cliff, you know, making a recommendation. You don't know what's going to happen. And I'm someone who cares deeply about my work and deeply about recommendations to people. I didn't want to ever recommend something to someone that wasn't going to make them money. People's retirement savings that these institutional investors were taking care of. and, And I felt that very keenly. And so I really had to reach down like every day and just say, okay, you know, I can do this. I can present my ideas. I can back them up with my research. I have the sincerity of believing, you know, in what I'm saying, and that has to be enough. And then walking forward, I think that's all we can do in any job and any position in our life is muster all the facts we can and put our heart into it and then walk forward. Great. Thank you for sharing that, Susan. One of the things that you and I discussed when we were standing near the frozen food section at Whole Foods was the way that someone's career unfolds. And I had an analogy of crossing a stream, kind of jumping from stone to stone. And you had a far more picturesque and eloquent way of describing it. Could you share that with our young listeners? Sure. What I think is there's no one right job for any of us. There's many things that could make us happy, many paths. And it's about identifying our values, you know, what's important to us, what's important in the people that we want to be with, what values do I want to share with those people. It's like a sailboat trying to get back to shore where you you can't take a straight line to shore. You have to tack back and forth. And as you tack back and forth, you get closer and closer. And, and it's not a linear path. It's an exploration, keeping your eye on the shore and keeping your eye on what's important to you 
as you navigate your way back. Your North Star. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. And I think that's so lovely. And instead of thinking of the fact that whatever it was, let's say you do start out on Wall Street and you discover that it really isn't for you. You may have learned some interesting things, but the lifestyle isn't for you in terms of the hours and you want more quality of life, work-life balance. And so you tack west and you try something else. Don't see that as a mistake. Right. It really isn't a mistake. It's a journey. Right. And even in the jobs you will not like or do not like, there are still valuable lessons and insights that you gain that you will take with you as you move on down the road or your journey to the reaching the, the shoreline. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's about always being curious and always asking questions and seeking, evolving and allowing yourself to evolve. Much of it is not easy, but that's how you grow and change. Absolutely. And so much of it unfolds because of the people that you haven't yet met and the experiences that you haven't yet had. And Mm -hmm. that's the way to look at life as kind of what next adventure lies ahead. So final time for coffee questions, Susan. If you could go back to college and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, major in something that is intellectually interesting probably be a history major or maybe an art history major and explore, go to the career resource office and look at every single possible job posting. Don't have any preconceived idea of what it is you need to be or where you need to go. Wonderful. Well, Susan's company is called the Orange Dot Baking Company. You can find it online. You can order her delicious gluten-free bread online and maybe give it as a Christmas gift, right? Great idea. Absolutely. That would be a wonderful idea. Give it as the gift of good health. Exactly. If you want to learn more about how to break into the field of entrepreneurship in the food industry, check out the show notes to see if Susan's Espresso Shot episode has already dropped. Susan, thank you so much for not thinking I'm a stalker and a crazy person. (laughs) No, I enjoyed it. It was great. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I really admire you and what you're doing and this social enterprise. I don't know if you view it that way, but I see it as a social enterprise because it's about giving back. Yes, I'm Uh, trying. You are building and you will do. I have no doubt that you will find a path forward. And I just wish you continued success with the Orange Dot Baking Company. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.